The UEFA Champions League is finally back in our loving arms. Do not miss the start of the round of 16 live on Paramount+. Plus. Oh, witness the top clubs in global football going head-to-head, desperate to secure that spot in the quarterfinals. Stakes higher than ever as football's brightest stars continue their hunt for eternal fame. Who doesn't want that? Don't forget to catch the best pre- and post-match coverage in the game with UEFA Champions League today. Get expert analysis from host Kate Abdo and analyst Thierry Henry, Jamie Carragher and Micah Richards live from the studio every UEFA Champions League match every single match along with the Europa League and my favourite Europa Conference League available live and on demand on Paramount Plus new subscribers get a one month free trial now by going to paramountplus.com MIB and use the promo code ADVANCE COURAGE Price Picks is the easiest and most exciting way to get in on the action while you watch your favourite sports and players. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Download the app today. Use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. New game day shirt. Boom, cash back. Food for the tailgate. Boom, cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash. Cashback when you use your debit card with Discover Cashback Debit. Everyone can earn cashback on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking the W. But you know what's a guaranteed win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a real game changer. Check out transaction, eligibility, and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. You're listening to the Men in Blazers Media Network, Suboptimal Radio. Here's Valverde for Real Madrid to the edge of the area and into the box and shoots across and it's there! Vinicius arrives at the back post, sliding in in the six-yard box and Real Madrid score first in the Stade de France in the Champions League final against Liverpool. This is Rog, and as we listen to the sounds of fresh glory, you know it, you are listening to European Nights, presented by Paramount Plus. And my lord, it's been a while, but we back to bring you the show that loves its football under the stars, its theme songs orchestral, and its Bodo glimped. And it really feels, honestly, like an eon since we've had European competitions on centre stage a whole World Cup ago, in fact. An absence really has made the heart grow fonder. I'm especially fond of the gent joining me today. As ever, is my co-host, co-pilot, world traveller, chief soccer correspondent for the New York Times, author of Expected Goals, the story of how data conquered football and changed the game forever. Who says that you can't do it all? Mr. Rory Smith. Hello, how are you doing? Oh, Rory, I'm looking at you and the world feels okay, which it's not. But just seeing you, it is good to be back, mate. I know, it's been, you're right. It's been a long time since since there's been any Champions League. I don't I don't like having so long without the Champions League. I mean, the World Cup was, was brilliant and obviously maybe not morally, but it was great. 
great sporting entertainment. <laughs> it was, it, the World Cup was brilliant in every way. Apart from those pesky morals. The um, like it was the World Cup final was possibly the greatest game of football that's ever happened. Um, that that was that was a thing, but it has been too long since the Champions League. Just normally we only we only have to wait like I guess two two months really between the group stage and, and the last sixteen. But now it feels like it's been three and a half. Yeah. What an honour it is to be able to do this together again, though football has not stood still during our podcasting sabbatical as the Greek philosopher, who sounds most like a Brazilian number six of all the Greek philosophers, Heraclitus once said, you never step in the same river twice and there's been change aplenty. Argentina, World Cup champions. Cristiano Ronaldo now lives in Riyadh. And fifth-tier Wrexham are a true global powerhouse brand. And Marine AFC are, on form, probably the best team in the Liverpool area. Rory, you reflected on the World Cup final in a number of pieces. And I adored December 21st, 81 minutes in, two big goals and one big rewrite. A poetic ode to the press box you called home for a month. And it was tough for me, I'm going to admit, to switch gears right back into Premier League watching mode. I can't imagine the mental toll that it takes on the players. And as we're gearing up to watch yet another high-stakes tournament kick back into gear, Rory, as a journalist, do you experience any amount of emotional whiplash pulling yourself from the fever pitch of one competition to another to another? Yeah, this is this is not a complaint that counts as a complaint because it's a privilege to be able to do it. But... It, it took me a long time to come down from the World Cup final. I think that's that's definitely true. The tournament itself had kind of been this thing that hung over every aspect of my professional life. And to an, to an extent, my, a large extent, my personal life, I was away from home for, for five weeks for so long. It had been this story that had been bubbling away for, for 12 years. And then you get to Qatar and it all kind of is suddenly real, all this stuff that you've thought about, all these issues that you've you've had to talk you talk to people about that you've confronted that you've tried to analyze and assess and then slowly but surely the kind of the, the world cup becomes the world cup and you remember what what a massive emotional high it is and i don't think you know i love european football rog i love the 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 kind of the bright lights of the champions league the the strange teams from the north from northern norway who 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 suddenly click into gear and become these wonderful stories that's what <laughs> that's the stuff that i i love about football far more than the kind of the day-to-day humdrum of the Premier League and the glitz and the glamour and the £107 million signings. But a World Cup is is another level entirely. And I think you kind of forget in between quite how special the World Cup is. And then suddenly there's a World Cup and you're like, oh God, I love the World Cup. And it takes ages. Normally you kind of get a couple of months of of transfer, pre-season and transfers and all that nonsense. And you kind of build back into the season. But this was very much, here is the greatest 40 minutes of football that has ever been played. The last 40 minutes of that final will, I don't think, can ever be topped. It took me 10 days to realise that the Kola Mouani chance that Emi Martinez saved and the, and the um, Lautaro Martinez header were part of the same move. I didn't realise that. I, I was sat in Lucille and I didn't realise that that happened without the ball going out of play. Those two things. <laughs> and it took so long to kind of come down from it because four days later, it was right, here's the Carabao. Off you go. We're, we're back in it. Then it's Boxing Day and you kind of think, oh, you know, will Villa beat whoever? No. And it's that is that is a real gear change. And it, it, it took a long 
time, I realised this is no this is no form of suffering, but it took a long time to kind of get used to it because the high of of that final and also the the sense of completion that the Tatar story had kind of happened was so difficult to overcome. God, I love that idea to go from that World Cup apex right into the Carabao. It's like that old bar mitzvah haiku. Today I am a man. On Monday I'll be back in sixth grade maths. That's exactly <laughs> how it felt. But we are amped as ever for the return of the Champions League, the Europa League, and especially, goes without saying, connoisseur's choice, the Conference League, to get settled back into today's episode before the return of those competitions. I want to plummet through the big news surrounding European football and overview the round of six and playoff rounds in store. All of it returns this week on Paramount Plus. Double P. New subscribers can get a one-month free trial now by going to paramountplus.com slash M-I-B and using the promo code ADVANCE. One month free M-I-B and use the promo code ADVANCE. And now to the football. was, oh, sounds so sweet, up the blues, the B-side of a 1973 7-inch single release by Manchester City, side A of course, being that old funk classic, Me Balls Burst by Manchester Act, The Syndicate, and Manchester is where we're going to start, Rory, where that cash of silver has suddenly been tarnished somewhat by the 100 plus pending charges for violation of financial fair play regulations. The Premier League hitting City with the Ronda Perlman special. One of the most significant financial fair play cases ever, made even more befuddling by the fact that really, no one's really surprised. It's so utterly believable to us that the country's most successful club over the last decade could have been in regular violation of regulations to provide in the Premier League's language in utmost good faith, accurate financial information that gives a true and fair view of the club's financial position, i.e. fraud. Rory, you pointed out in your piece that you wrote in the immediate aftermath last week that no matter what Man City gained and others lost financially from the accused distortions, the bottom line of this news really is the human cost, the opportunity, the moments robbed and denied from other English football teams and their fan bases. And as astounding as it may be that few are truly surprised by the news last week, it's yet more astounding that based on City's historical precedent of lawyering up and skirting punishment, it still feels within the realm of possibility that little material effect will come from this. Indeed, the flip side of harsh sanctions would require the Premier League to discard one of its biggest assets and the British government alienating one of its biggest sovereign investors. Rory, can you talk a little bit about the underlying human costs that are buried within the rule codes? And do you think any penalties incurred can truly pay it back? The nightmare scenario for the Premier League really is that, that City are found guilty, that the, that the disciplinary panel that, that will be convened in the next weeks or months or years to, to hear this case and that will have to deal with the army of lawyers trudging their way from, from East Manchester um, 
decide that they can uphold the 115 penalties. Because that then puts this question mark over they're one of the biggest brands in the Premier League, one of the one of the kind of the draws for the lead, best coach in the world, superstar players. You're not only tarnishing them, you're not only kind of casting them as the villains. You're also saying that everything they've achieved, whether they strip them of titles or expel them from the lead or relegate them or whatever, even if they just find if they, even if they find them a dollar, you are effectively saying that all of the things they've done weren't real because they were and this is, I think, something that people find really hard to kind of get their heads around, and I do too. They were financially doped. And just as in athletics or cycling, when there is actual physical doping, where you inject something into your bloodstream, it renders the results, the performances, unreal. So does that mean the Aguero moment, which is probably the iconic Premier League moment? Balotelli, Aguero! Not just a moment, but the memories shared by yeah. the fans, the families, the friends, cross-generational memories forged forever. In some cases with loved ones who are not yeah, with yeah. us anymore. You know, what are they? Well, they're not. Are they Are they real? And the feelings were real. The things that the City fans felt in that moment are absolutely real. The devastation that Manchester United felt in that moment is absolutely real. But what did it mean? Because if City were cheating, which is what the allegation is, then it wasn't won honourably. And with sport without honour doesn't, have, have any meaning so either way people lose either city's fans lose their memories or if they're they're found as they did with the, with the uefa case if they get off on on the fact that something's time barred or there's some some other technicality some some reason why the case isn't convincing enough but there's enough to leave a stain then you know tottenham could have been tottenham could have finished fourth four years in a row and that's four years in the champions league that's a lot of money which is then spent on players which is then translated into ideally success which then makes them a genuine force. Maybe Tottenham would have won a league if City hadn't hadn't done this allegedly. The ramifications are enormous, and the Premier League do have this this strange strange position where, if they win the case, they don't incur the biggest damage. That obviously would be Manchester City, their reputation, the whole project. But the Premier League would be a close second because it's ten years of history that we all have to kind of go through and say, well. Maybe I don't want to talk about that anymore. So is the timing of all of this just pure coincidence, Rory? Or with Chelsea probing loopholes in FFP's flimsy legal language, Newcastle girding their loins to spend big in the summer, Manchester United themselves the subject of takeover speculation from Qatar, and the government positioning a white paper that could lead to the Premier League being overseen by an independent regulator... Is part of this just the Premier League laying down a marker? Well, you have to consider that that the Premier League is essentially like a Thatcherite neocon construction. It's it's neoconservatism in its in its purest form. There is no there is no more kind of oh, when you phrase it like that, I'd be glad when Everton are out of it. <laughs> no, it is like the, the Premier League is the ultimate in kind of free market economics. It's a libertarian's dream. They are not generally pro-regulation. They don't think regulation is a good thing. So when when the city charges dropped, and they dropped very subtly, very quietly, just a statement uploaded to the Premier League's website, um, they didn't alert journalists, despite what Man City fans think. They, they didn't call round as they were putting this up. It was just there, and someone noticed it. There was a suspicion that they were doing it as a way of saying to the government, look, you... You've got this white paper. You've got this idea for an independent re- independent regulator. But look, we don't need it. Look, we 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 are in charge of this. These we've got them all to heal. We've got this great disciplinary system. Aren't we clever? I, I've got to admit, I don't buy that. It proves more than anything else, really, 
that you need some sort of independent regulation, that there needs to be a body, and it's this isn't a comparison that I can make particularly convincingly, but it strikes me that in, in the major sports in the US, the owners tend to have an understanding that their health relies to an extent on each other. The alternative choice appears to be that all of the clubs are locked in this death spiral where they, they want to be the only team that exists, which is the Premier League's kind of mantra at this point because it is a Thatcherite neocon construction. I'm not sure that's a great idea. I think there has to be some sort of kinship between the clubs, some understanding that their, that their interests are, are connected and to some extent aligned, regardless of their size or their ambitions or whatever it is. And ultimately, the Premier League has proved it's not able to do that. The clubs themselves are not able to police themselves. So you probably need someone to be in charge. Rory Smith coming out as anti-death spiral. That is, yeah. that is, that is a my, hot take. That's my view. <laughs> but as we discussed in the past, the financial arms war within European football has really been a process of incremental escalation. And there's an emergent economic echelons have formed across the continent. The panic and the inability to close the gaps have grown amongst those clubs who are below the very top. You look no further than Juventus, mighty in name, but recently hit with a 15-point deduction in Serie A for cooking their books from 2019 to 2021. Really an act of desperation. Born from reading the writing on the wall that top clubs must either accept they can't go toe-to-toe with English financial giants or risk it all in attempting to compete. And the market is shifting all the time, no doubt. The Premier League spending dwarfed the other top five leagues in January. And Rory, one of the things I love most about this podcast is celebrating canny team building, investment in scouting networks, daring, creative, intelligent thinking that's made teams like Sevilla, Lille, Napoli, Atalanta, Eintracht Frankfurt, European regulars. But that painstaking, almost unquantifiable world that makes our competition sing, it's now dangerously subject to the whims of English football, who, as you write, are so impossibly wealthy Every strategy other than just throwing money at problems is now secondary. And we'll get to Chelsea in a moment. But first, Rory, the wanton excess of this last window in total, at what point did you incredulity turn to morbidity? Relatively early on, I think. The, I'm, I'm, I was primed for that anyway. I, I think this, is, this sounds incredibly pretentious and I, I make no apologies for that. I, I like football as a, as a global thing. I'm, I'm English. I support an English team. I, I kind of, I watch more Premier League than than any other league probably. Um, but to me, the the appeal of football has always been the romance. Has always been the the, the globality of it, the the mystique. I'm I still miss Red Star Belgrade and Stour Bucharest. I I miss the days when you would suddenly find your team, or you'd turn on a, a game where an English team was playing a European team, and you'd heard none of the players, and they were amazing. I cannot tell younger listeners how how eye-opening and jaw-dropping and how much that made your heart sing to see that there was some weird team in, in an Eastern <laughs> European city you'd never heard of who were incredible. Even if it was only briefly, if, even, even if it didn't last, even if suddenly you saw Panathinaikos and thought that they could be the greatest team in the world. I don't know. I miss all that. So I was already primed to kind of find the Premier League's yeah, wantonness a little bit not just unsettling and distasteful, but deeply troubling. I think that it, it, it is causing a massive imbalance in European football. You can, 
you can trace Juve and Barca's financial crisis as well, not just to the Premier League. It's linked as well to the you know the arrival of PSG. It looked certainly in hindsight as though PSG had had a deliberate strategy for a while of trying to inflate the market so that other clubs couldn't compete or had to risk everything to do so. What Juve and Barca have done, I don't think we can condone, but you can probably you can probably try to understand a little bit why they were doing it. And it is because they're, they're forced to exist in this totally imbalanced financial landscape because you have this one huge centre of gravity parked just offshore of Europe. And I don't think that the long-term impact on the game, certainly in Europe or the rest of the world, is good. I'm not convinced it's brilliant for England, if I'm completely honest. But it's certainly something that, that there needs to be some sort of cross-border, cross-lead, cross-club thinking hat put on to try and find a way of making it not quite as dangerous. People, the counter-argument is always that there's always been one lead that's better than all the others, and that is true. Serie A in the 90s was was better than every other lead in the world. It had the best players, had the best teams, all that. The difference is that when, when an Italian team had a player, a Spanish team could afford to buy them. When there was a, a hot property in Portugal or in Greece or Turkey or wherever, that there were Italian clubs and French clubs and Spanish clubs and certain German clubs who were capable of paying their wages. You now have Bournemouth outbidding AC Milan to the point where AC Milan have decided (laughs) that it's not even worth putting offers in for players. That's AC Milan. If you get into into a kind of reality where all of the talent flows to England, you wonder how many of those clubs who make European football so interesting and so different and so exciting and so constantly evolving, how many of them grind to a halt? God, if the only thing that's going to say football is a thinking hat, Rory, we are so bloody doomed. But the biggest beneficiaries slash culprits in this last window were, of course, Chelsea Football Club, led by Todd the Loophole Burley, who's wandered into global football a bit like Elon Musk into Twitter HQ, armed only with a sink. And before we get to Hot Toddy, first the nuts and bolts at the beginning of this season, we looked on with complete and utter confusion at Barcelona, whose speculative sale of assets funded really a guerrilla transfer window. They hijacked deals, several directly, it should be said, straight out of Chelsea's shocked hands. And Todd Burley's response, once bitten, twice shy, really an attempt to take a shortcut through the rebuild process, handing a fairly shell-shocked Graham Potter a small army of under-23 prospects pulling out a cash roll as large as the GDP of a small Balkan nation. And let's talk practically. On the pitch, Rory, we know there's no sure thing in football. Precedent tells us that at least a couple of these new shiny signings will soon simply be doomed to become talented detritus, $50 million casualties of mass recruitment and a hefty price tag. Oh, it's so thrilling to watch in the tabloids, you know, fans foaming them up, but it's no guarantee of consistent form. Development isn't linear. There's simply not enough oxygen practically at a club like Chelsea for every single one of these new faces to get what they need to flourish. So where do you shake out on, I guess it's the risk reward of transfers. Do you have any inclination of how these pieces can come together at Chelsea or does it even matter if they can't? I think that, I mean I think the likelihood is that that a couple of them will eventually be cast by the wayside. And obviously, you, you look at Enzo Fernandez looks like a sure thing, one of the standout players of the World Cup. Clearly, a kind of generational talent as a midfielder. I think 
Benoit Badia-Shile, the central defender they signed, actually looks like probably the best of the signings. One of the most reasonably priced, but has slotted in really nicely straight away. Um, Mudrick, I think, was was more overpriced than Fernandez. He's the one that seemed to be Chelsea getting a little bit carried away, maybe, um, more than anything, kind of obsessed with, with getting this player that Arsenal wanted, rather than thinking, how much <laughs> how much do we need him? I don't... I don't think Mudrick, and he might have a higher ceiling, but left winner was not a position that Chelsea were weak in particularly. Certainly wasn't a priority, and yet they went that bid for him. And you've got to remember that for all that Todd Burley's been given this credit for coming up with this ingenious strategy of paying more for things over a longer period, that's that's Todd Burley's strategy. If that sounds familiar to you, that's called APR, and and it's on your credit card. That's credit card debt. That's that's what he's doing. His gamble, I guess, is that that he could afford to kind of to spread the cross so that the risk is lower. But at the same time, he, he will be lumbered with having to pay these people for eight and a half years now. And if they don't work out, that's going to be a problem. The problem I have with it isn't just the financial aspect. It's not just the, the, the fact that they seem to not care about being overcharged. You know, they, they went in, they lowballed Benfica. Benfica got annoyed with them, cancelled negotiations over Fernandez, And then at the end of the window, <laughs> Chelsea went back and said, all right, we'll, we'll just pay you all of it. The release fee. They, they triggered the release fee. If you're going to trigger the release, that's that's fine, I guess. But do it at the start and get over and done with. We negotiated them up to their release fee. Yeah, we walked into the shop and we paid what, what we, we, we what we were told to pay for the item we bought. Well done, everybody. What a trial. <laughs> well done, <Yeah>. team. <laughs> The um, another successful jaunt to Sainsbury's. The um, the I don't understand that side of it. But the thing that confused me more than anything is that I don't think it's been done with any real logic behind it. Beyond Chelsea did need younger players. That's completely fair enough. The squad needed a bit of an overhaul. But in terms of the positions of those players, in terms of the profile of them, I don't quite see what they're thinking they're going to get. And in the summer they are going to have to sell players because there'll be a lot of players, not necessarily, not necessarily the ones they've just signed, but there'll be a lot of players there thinking, well, I'm not getting to play. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is not in the Champions League squad. He is not going to stick around at Chelsea to play every so often in the Premier League. You don't have to swallow a lot of money on those players. That's how it works. That's the reality of it. I don't understand why they're prepared to sustain those losses. It doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me. They'll have to sell other players if they're not in the Champions League. They, they might find that certain players are a little bit unhappy at the idea of being out of the Champions League. So th- there's a lot of questions over Chelsea. They've just signed some very talented players. Whether it's been done with any grand plan in mind, I'm not entirely sure. Can we get a quick take on Todd Burley now? Because he's a gentleman whose enthusiasm to invest in his new team has yet to be matched really by an enthusiasm for watching them play from the stands. I love any time there's a cutaway shot and he just he's glued to his phone like a tween who's just been given access by his parents to TikTok for the first time. And to an American audience, we have a context for Todd. He's just like classic quintessential sports executive, you know, the type where why would you not clumsily throw business jargon into casual conversation whenever you can? And I do know in England, they saw his arrival with with somewhat of a derisory take initially, you know, the 4-4-3 conversations, the all-star game, his early encounters with VAR. Uh, It was all a little bit idiot abroad trope, I think, for English people. But the way he's opened up his wallet for Chelsea, well, it's not really his wallet. The way he's opened his wallet up and seen other people's money fly out of it really makes Roman Abramovich's first season look sane and sage. Um, and the workarounds that he talks about in FFP, 
how would you say his image has shifted, if at all, in the wake of this window, Rui? I guess I'm asking, what does the English football community, how do they view our Todd? That's a great question. I think the English football community is broadly quite confused by him because... <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of those early missteps have been have been forgotten almost that you know the idea of the all-star game which to be honest wasn't a ridiculous suggestion it's not traditional but it wasn't an absurd suggestion he's certainly not the first person to say there should be an all-star game um that that's been replaced by this conversation over whether he he has any idea at all what he's doing basically that the there's a sense of he's a good owner because he spends money that's what apparently what we want from our owners it, it stops there. If you put enough money behind it, people will say, well, he's a good owner, he's doing the right thing. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that at all, but that is the way that that's been perceived. Whilst at the same time, there's an awareness that they're spending slightly ludicrous amounts of money. No one's quite sure why they're spending that amount of money. No one's quite sure who the, who whose money it is. And also no, one's, no one really knows what the long-term play behind their thinking is. You know, you're, if you're investing $290 million dollars, Maybe three hundred, maybe three hundred and fifty million dollars. You know, these huge sums of money in a January. Then the assumption I think has to be that they've seen something that we don't know about. He got a lot of credit for his credit card plan, which I was slightly surprised by. So I'm not sure it's that clever a plan. <laughs> but that that's been treated. It's really interesting that, and I've had this conversation a lot in the last few weeks. There is an assumption, and I think it's correct that because of the colour of his skin and the the colour of his passport. It's being assumed that what he's doing is clever rather than he's lavishing money on this trinket, this this toy. Whereas if he was Russian, and particularly if he was Arab, I think it would be it would be projected very differently. It would be seen as being somehow more gauche, less sensible. No one would be listening to his clever plan about amortizing the cost of the contract over eight, eight and a half years. It would be this is ridiculous. Something must be done. I think there is there is merit to that argument. Um and I, to an extent, we're not immune. We do like, in Britain, we do like the, the caricature of the slightly, you know, naive American coming along, thinking they know everything. That is, it may be that Britain in the past has has toyed with that caricature of America. But it's interesting because I think we're not immune to being dazzled by executive talk, by business jargon, by by this cult of the kind of, he's not really a tech bro, but that kind of venture capitalist I can see the future, I know the way the world is going. That kind of self-belief, we're not immune to that. We have that here too. And I think a lot of the coverage has veered towards that recently, this idea that Bowley is taking a massive risk, but there could be massive rewards. I don't think anyone's looking at it and thinking, well, this makes no sense, and he's going to have to pay them more money, so what's he doing? Whereas I think that in a different context, if he was from somewhere else, that might be a much bigger part of the conversation. I love this. The notion that Todd Burley is floating somewhere between the late great Steve Jobs and Clark Griswold. <laughs> in all that bacchanale, really Caligula Chelsea transfer window, seems almost secondary. Chelsea not doing particularly well this campaign. <laughs> to the best of your understanding, financially, how disastrous would it be for them not to make Champions League play next season? Under normal rules, it's it's really bad because the Champions League guarantees, you know, seventy to a hundred million pounds, up to say one hundred and fifty million dollars, something like that. Plus the, all this other commercial revenue that's dependent on it. There's, it's a way of attracting other players. There's all these kind of ancillary benefits to being in the Champions League. Chelsea would miss out on all of them. And to be honest, at the current rate of progress, it looks like they probably will miss out on all of them, barring a fairly spectacular uptick in form in the second half of the season. Um, 
but then Chelsea don't appear to be subject to normal rules at the moment. Clear Lake and, and Todd Bowley, the the owners seem to be saying they can go again in in the summer, they can spend more. So probably not at all. They might not care. You know, 10 points off the top four right now, Chelsea Football Club. It may be that the hopes of qualification for next year's Champions League lie in this year's tournament. And so their opponents in the round of 16, Borussia Dortmund, the stakes could not be higher. Kicking off Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern time on Paramount+. Plus. Giorena's boys, as they're known, across Germany, currently placed third in the Bundesliga, trailing first place Bayern by three points and second place surprise package Union Berlin by two. Fascinating title race we'll discuss in weeks to come. And the team so meticulously constructed and deployed will be some task for Chelsea, who were limited to registering three of their six new signings for Champions League play. Mudrick, Felix and Enzo Fernandez were the only ones to make the cut. And Dortmund Rory, they followed a pattern in recent years. We talked a lot about building slowly, capably through aspirational youth development overseen by canny veteran eyes. Currently, the bright young talents of Kareem Aduyemi and Jude Bellingham being marshaled by the experienced Marco Royce and Emre Chan. But just as they seem ready to reach their peak, the squad is always ransacked. Sancho, Harlan, Dembele, this iteration of Dortmund, though, does it have as high a ceiling as any other? Do they have real hope of keeping this together? What can they achieve? Uh, they always say they've got hope of keeping it together. <laughs> they, they do not mean it. Their model is built around selling. To an extent, if they don't sell those players, if they do keep Jude Bellingham for another year, then the next Jude Bellingham, and that's what Dortmund will be looking for, will think, well, hang on, I don't want to, I don't want to be trapped at Dortmund when I've got a move to Real Madrid or Manchester City waiting for me. I want to be able to move. Dortmund have always kind of, the deal has always been, come and give us two or three of your development years and we will sell you when the time is right for you and to an extent for us. I don't see any way they can break with that now. So no, the reality is that this summer, Bellingham will almost certainly leave. Um, one or two of the others might as well, Bino Gittin, someone like that. You know, they, they are talented players. There, there will be people watching them. They always have lots of indi- individual talent because they have so many bright young things. The problem they've they've always had, or they certainly have since 2013, is because they have so much youth and then they have this you know smattering of, of slightly older players, journeymen to some extent, classy veterans in other cases, there is a lack of balance to the team. And that's what stymied their, their attempts to kind of dislodge Bayern as, as German champions so many times they've come close they've had they've certainly they've probably had years where their first 11 is as talented as Bayern Munich's but they don't have the depth they don't have the organisation they don't have the the kind of the grit and the grizzle to get through and I think in the Champions League that plays out as well as a rule Dortmund struggle as soon as they run into an elite team because they are they are naturally flawed because of their model the thing that brings them so much success also places a ceiling on what they can achieve the hope, I guess, this season is that they, you know, they've come back from the Christmas break. The, the Germans had an extremely long winter break um, because of the World Cup. They didn't stick around at the World Cup particularly <laughs> either, to be fair. The, um, they've had, you know, they had, they had a long time off and they've come back in pretty good form, Dortmund. They are, as you say, three points off Bayern. There is a genuine title race in the Bundesliga this season. Dortmund should be going in with a reasonable degree of confidence. And that should be exacerbated by the fact that Chelsea are not perfect. Chelsea are not the Chelsea that... that to be honest, they're probably not the Chelsea that Dortmund will be thinking of when they think they've got Chelsea. They are a slightly more work-in-progress team than might be expected. 
especially given the amount of money they spent in the last year or so. So I think Dortmund will go into this game thinking they probably do have a chance, but they are always at disadvantage because they are the development club. They're the springboard. Chelsea are the place that players go. Giorena coming off that bench. It's simply inevitable. Spite scoring, the greatest scorers. The only unknown is what form of I'm not listening to you, Selly. He's got in store for the eyes of the world. We'll be back with an overview of this week's other gigantic storylines after a quick break. The UEFA Champions League on Paramount Plus enters the knockout phase. Where Messi and Mbappe form a show-stopping dream team. Unstoppable in Paris. America's shooting stars shine bright. What a hit! And all the top clubs from Manchester to Munich are on the hunt for some hardware. Oh, that is beautiful! Because on this stage, winning is all that matters. Stream every UEFA Champions League match live exclusively on Paramount Plus. Price Picks is the best way to get action on sports in more than 30 states across the country, including some of my favourites, California, Texas and Georgia. Godspeed, Georgia. I'm hungry for a dozen lemon pepper wet. But back to Price Picks. We've been hearing from so many WGFOPs who are loving Double P, Pablo Picasso, Price Picks, which allows them to win up to 25 times their money for the soccer season. is a reason I do appreciate Price Picks because it's simple. During the Premier League match days, I've got roughly 239 tabs on my computer open as we attempt to work out our social media, the pod rundown, the upcoming interview, you get the drift. But because Price Picks is easy to play, I'm not having to constantly click to see how my gents are doing or how many certain actions are worth. You just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats and you place your entry. That is how easy it can be. You also mix and match players from several leagues across the globe. Luca De La Torre, I'm looking at you, as well as other sports like basketball oh, and hockey. Oh, the capitals. Download the app today. Use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. It's promo code MIB. Prize picks. Pick more or pick less. It's that easy. And that, oh, that is the sound of PSG's Parc de Prance welcoming Lionel Messi back on his glorious return to goal scoring after the World Cup. Oh, honestly, they're treating him as if he's Salt Bay. Back in January, scored against Angers. PSG hosts the headline match of the round of 16 in the Champions League this year, facing up to German ever power Bayern Munich. Though in truth, whisper this, neither of these giants are really as potent as their brands conjure in our imagination. In Ligue 1, PSG have tilted ever so slightly in 2023. Yes, five points clear at the top, but more so thanks to the rest of the top five dropping points than keeping their own foot on the gas. Building up to the match against Bayern, Mbappe remains an injury doubt. Bayern, as mentioned previously, embroiled in a very entertaining, or should I say, very entertaining for non-Bayern fans, title race in Germany. Still league leaders, yes, but by a fine margin. They tooled up in January, brought in the worldly daily blint on a free. I love that transfer. Added City defector, Zhao Cancelo, to complete a fearsome fullback rotation of daily. Davies, Pavard and Masruai. This week, I favour the Germans, Rory. PSG suddenly looks so thin 
They have to feel teenagers like El Shadi Bitchabu, Warren Zaire Emery, or Timothy Pembele. Pessy could never to plug gaps in the squad. And manager Gaultier can't seem to find a balance he likes chopping, changing, shifting his system week on week. It's a big worry for PSG fans who live in perpetual fear that they'll lose Mbappe if they crash out again. And with his involvement likely limited to substitute appearances at a maximum in this first leg, it's really a crucial match for both team season. This clash, could you say, is truly the season for both, and both teams seem unusually feeble. Yeah, completely. These are the two teams more than any other now that Juventus have kind of slipped away um, into disgrace. Um, the, their whole season is built around the Champions League. Even Real Madrid, who are the kind of the Champions League club, the team that just kind of wins it because that's what they do. You know, Real Madrid expect every season to have a title race with Barcelona. That There is genuine jeopardy built into their DNA over who will be champions of Spain. And it's not great that it's just the two of them, but at least there's somebody else. Whereas PSG and Bayern take the, the, the Bundesliga and Liga titles essentially for granted to such an extent that they are kind of meaningless. Like it doesn't mean anything if PSG win Liga. <laughs> Even the, P, the PSG fans, I think, enjoy it, but they know that that's not the test of their of their team. That's not what their team's been built to do. So for both of them, to be honest, in terms of look of the draw, it's actually quite unfortunate for both that they've run into each other in the last 16 because it means that to an extent, particularly for PSG, who will probably go on to win the, the French title anyway, the season's kind of over in, in very early March and that's really not ideal. And it might just be because they've run into Bayern Munich and Bayern Munich are quite good. The curiosity though is that Neither are going very well. Bayern kept drawing games when Germany came back from its its winter break. They've they turned it around a bit. They're starting to pick up a little bit of form, but it's hard to say whether beating you know Mainz in the cup and Bochum in the, in the Bundesliga is it <laughs> is if that's a real guide. Those are games that they should they'd be expected to win anyway. PSG every time they've they faced a, a difficult opponent in the last month and a half have lost. They lost to Monaco, they lost to Marseille in the French Cup. They lost to Lens, who are the kind of surprise title challenges in France. They lost to Rennes, who are a kind of Europa League contender in France. That's not great in the course of, of a couple of months. And it looks again like there might be managerial change on the horizon. The questions have come back over, over whether Messi, Neymar and Mbappe can be fitted into to any kind of modern, sophisticated system. I think the answer to that is probably fairly obvious now, And although we have to all keep asking it, pretending we don't know. Um, <laughs> As you say, the injury doubts over Mbappe are a real blow of, of the three of them, although Neymar's probably had been in the best form this season. He's the one they probably can't afford to lose. That, that He's the, the real kind of cutting edge to everything PSG do. Messi and Neymar can kind of stand in for each other almost, but no one can replace Mbappe. So you'd have to say that Bayern have the edge, but they're not convincing either. And it's actually, it's a slightly strange Champions League knockouts as we look at them kind of before everything happens. Because apart from Real Madrid, who can be relied upon to be Real Madrid in the Champions League, and possibly Manchester City, the traditional giants don't look that strong, which makes you wonder whether somebody else might have a chance. It's got to be said that it is something of an indictment on PSG's recruitment that they still yet to fill the gap left by the dual departures of Blaise Matuidi in 2017 and then Thiago Murta a year later. 
But where there is Hakimi, there is always hope. As Jane Austen herself wrote of the dashing Moroccan, in vain have I struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently Rory Smith admires and loves you. And Hakimi hasn't missed a beat since his impressive World Cup. The game is not to be missed. Tuesday, 3pm Eastern on Paramount+. Plus. I'd also like to point attention to Milan against Tottenham at the same time. The game, a gallbladder, oh, gave its life for. Both of those teams have floundered, really, and since the beginning of 2023. Both need a boost. Both desperately need to snowball some momentum on to the Europa League. Rory, let's revel in it. We're in the fixture congesting playoff rounds. The eye catcher though, what a gift. Barcelona against Manchester United Thursday, 12.45pm on Paramount+. Plus. Rory, having spoken plenty about English teams today, tell us what's going on at Barcelona right now, who we've treated really as a figurehead of mismanagement this season, but they just went 11 points clear atop La Liga last weekend. What is what is working for Zafi? Oh, Roger, it's all fine. It's all fine. They've pulled the levers. <laughs> they signed some players. They don't know when the league. It's all, it's all worked. It's all fine. They got knocked out the Champions League and that was financially disastrous, of course. But And it means they'll have to sell off a load more of their future in the summer. But forget about that. It's all fine. They've got Pedri and Gavi and they've got Usman Dembele, who's now good again. And Lewandowski's storing loads of goals, although he's not really quite sure. You're never quite sure how he's storing that. He appears to have stored about 24 this season without me noticing, which is quite impressive. <laughs> um, the, they, they've clicked. They're, it's an interesting one, this, because it's actually quite hard to get a, get a read on where both of these teams are. Man United obviously are third in the Premier League and and in the title race, which is far more than they expected this season. Eric Ten Hag, without question, has done a great job. With, with relatively limited resources, given that he spent 100 million euros on Anthony. But their record against the major teams, the teams that you expect to challenge them, hasn't been quite as impressive, despite the, the winning the derby against Manchester City. Barcelona, it's hard to get a read on because they have been incredibly impressive in La Liga. They're kind of grinding out results. They're not the kind of beautiful Guardiola-esque symphony that you might expect from Xavi Hernandez, but they are grinding out results. They're defensively brilliant. They've only conceded, I think, six in the entire league season, flying clear of Madrid, having a great time. Some of the most promising young players in the world. You've not just got, got Gavi and Pedri in midfield with Frenchie de Jong. You've got um, people like Alejandro Balde coming through as well, Ronald Araujo, who's, who's emerged as a, a really top-class defender. They have the core of a team that will carry them through for, for the next few years, Barcelona. That, that without question, has, has, has come good. You would point out they had that in place already before they spent all that money, but never mind. The, but, it's, again, it's hard to tell how good they are. And it'll be interesting to see how these two kind of square up to each other because I guess logic would have it that United are the stronger because they are in the Premier League. It's a tougher league. They, they are competing with be with better quality sides, I guess. But then Barcelona are ultimately a long way clear at the top of La Liga. And they're in, you know there's no slouches in there. You've, st you've still got Real Madrid. You've still got Atletico Madrid. You've got Real Sociedad who are flying. It will be really interesting to see comparatively where they are in relation to each other. Oh, Ten Hag, that reinvigoration 
of the squad. Really remarkable. The stoic lowlander slowly carving all that deep rot out of the club in impressive but stepwise manner. Leading by example for him on the field when not suspended is that square shape who fills every round hole. Casemiro, proper Madrid. Xavi himself expressed his admiration for Ten Hag's work just last week, saying, we are coming back. Manchester United and Barcelona, oh, both are in the Europa League. I think both teams deserve to be in the Champions League, but this is our reality and we need to face it. This one again, Thursday, 12.45pm Eastern Time, Paramount Plus. Next up, the one true crown jewel of UEFA competitions. The UEFA Champions League on Paramount Plus enters the knockout phase. Where Messi and Mbappe form a show-stopping dream team. Unstoppable in Paris. America's shooting stars shine bright. What a hit! And all the top clubs from Manchester to Munich are on the hunt for some hardware. Oh, that is beautiful! Because on this stage, winning is all that matters. Stream every UEFA Champions League match live exclusively on Paramount Plus. It's Rog here to tell you about a product that I simply adore. It's been a long time staple in the Bennett refrigerator, Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. Always bold, always smooth. Yes, that is the very same Stoke as in the mighty Wrexham Fortress, known as the Stoke Kairas or the Stoke Racecourse, Wrexham AFC's home. They support it. They support football, which is just one great reason to love this coffee. It is my go-to enjoy during the football calendar, essentially the opposite of Everton. And you can check out their full lineup of 48 ounce cold brew products, something for everybody from light to dark roast to seasonal favourites in a refrigerated multi serve format. I tell you this, as someone whose blood type is now officially Stoke Espresso Blend, have the coffee house experience in the comfort of your own home and do it now. Stoke Cold Brew Coffee and be sure to follow Wrexham AFC. Big love to all at Stoke. Courage. Oh, the old bait and switch. You thought you were going to hear Queen, but instead you got the anthem of CFR 1907 Kluge, the pride of Transylvania, or so their anthem says. Conference League time, Rory. Oh, we're saving the best to last, where we're also in the playoff rounds and you are salivating at the prospect of Kluge's game, which pits the mighty railwaymen in there, white and burgundy against Rome's Lazio. What do you like about this one, Mr. Smith? Well, I think Lazio are an interesting team at the moment. They they are the place that Maurizio Sarri landed after his misadventures at Chelsea and at, and at Juventus. They seem to have taken to his methods far better than either of those teams did. That If you watch Lazio when they're on Son, and obviously because they, they're not a kind of elite, super elite team, they don't have you know 25 world-class players to draw on, that there are times when they are slightly less than perfect but when they're on song they are brilliant to watch and they they took Milan apart a few weeks ago in Serie A just a wonderful display of kind of swift breathtaking attacking football and I do just wonder whether Lazio could be the the sort of profile of team and we're still learning what profile of team wins the the Europa Conference League because all we know so far is that it's Roma so that's the only sign we've got to go on that teams from Rome 
do well in the conference league. So my theory is that Lazio might win it this time just because Roma did it last year and because they seem to have that right kind of balance where they are capable of putting on scintillating attacking performances, but they are at the same time deeply flawed. And that's what you want from your conference league teams. Roll on, deep floors, Lazio versus CFR, 1907 Kluge. At the Stadio Olimpico Thursday, 3pm Eastern Time. Lazio, of course, slight outsiders in the entertaining Serie A title race. And if you've not seen it, do check out the goal Pedro scored against Verona two weekends ago. That man will always be underappreciated, but with a special place in my heart. Before we close, we simply can't kick things back off in 2023 without a quick word for Bodo Glimt. Give the people what they want. BG host Polish third places, Lech Poznan in their qualifier. I love a Polish team that sounds like I'm clearing my throat, not once, but twice in quick succession. And the Norwegian elite Syrian is still in between seasons. It doesn't care kick off until April so Godspeed fingers crossed our boys can shake off all those icy cobwebs and that will do it for the European football today Rory though before we go how about a tiny crevice of insight on the food scene in Rome the eternal city if we were there tonight what delicious culinary delights would we feast upon in that ancient city? Well, I mean, there's so many choices. I, I, I can't name one. My my favourite areas of Rome are Monte, which is kind of behind the back of the Colosseum, and Trastevere, which is the trendy kind of bars, atmosphere, traditional kind of Roman scene. But the one, the piece of, the single piece of food that I think about when I think of Rome is from a bakery around the back of the Piazza Navona. Um, and I don't know what the bakery was called. I think it was just called forno, which means bakery in Italian. And it was a, a kind of piece of tomato bread that had been twisted around and they'd threaded cheese and, um, and parma ham through it. And I spent six weeks in Rome one summer when I was younger and, and carefree. And I think I ate about three a day. And I, I still miss them. I still really miss them. I can't remember what they're called. Possibly torcilioni. That might be what they're called. Oh. Um, so if you're in Rome... Go around the back of the Piazza Navona, look for a sign that says Forno and ask for a Torcilioni. And it is a, a guarantee it, it will. It's simple, straightforward. It's got ham in it. That's all I need. You can take the boy out of Leeds. You can't take the Leeds out of again. Essentially, Italian pie. Do you have anything that's like that's like a pasty? <laughs> no, it's not. It's it's not a pasty. It's it's a bread product. It is. Is it near the Totti mural? So no, so Monty is where the Totti mural is. And there is a brilliant little restaurant that I went to uh, in Monty when I went to see the Totti mural. I would recommend the Totti mural because you're guaranteed to see it either when it's been restored or defaced. Because it is, it's restored and defaced in this wonderful kind of changing of the seasons. Waxing and waning. Yeah, it's that. like the moon. So you, some weeks you go and his face is there. And some weeks you go and the Lazio fans have been again and they've scrubbed <laughs> it out. Dinner with the view and some defaced totty. It doesn't get much better. By the way, if you can ever eat under a Mourinho mural, just be careful. You're guaranteed to get a kick in the shins and your wallet stolen. Rome need to say this, home to one of my favourite single restaurants in the entire world, Roscioli. Get a reservation ahead of time, sit in the basement, in the wine cellar. Rory, one of these days, we will eat anchovies there together. Oh, it is incredible to be back in action with you, Rory Smith. There is so much for us to unpack in this second half of the season. I'm chomping at the bit. You're a beautiful human being, letting us borrow your gigantic brain. 
for the last hour. It has been a pleasure, mate. I'm glad to be back with you. You beautiful bloke. We'll be back next week after the first leg of our competitions. As always, find them all exclusively on demand on Paramount+. Plus. Remember, new subscribers can get a one-month free trial now by going to ParamountPlus.com slash MIB. Use that promo code ADVANCE. As they say in Romania, COURAGE! Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami. There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.